Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. We have been following, as you might expect, um, what has been happening with Red Hat and CentOS transitioning to Red Hat Stream. Try to keep my finger on the pulse of that. Joining us this hour, his name is Greg Kurtzner. He is one of the early founders of CentOS and now the executive director of the Rocky Linux Project, a distribution that seeks to be a bug-for-bug Red Hat Linux-compatible distribution. He joins us this hour as a guest on the Ask Noah Show. Greg, welcome into the program. Thank you so much for having me. Great to meet you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here. So um, take me back to the beginning, Greg. Take me back to October of 2000. Um, before, before Red Hat, before Red Hat Enterprise Linux, even before CentOS, um, back when you're working, it's just Greg and the community and the Debian community at that. What was Greg doing in those days? Where were you at in life? What was your interest in Linux? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, I have to go way back and remember, uh, a long time ago since them days. Um, let's see, uh, just at the end of the nineties, um, I have a degree in biochemistry and I came out of biochemistry, got really interested in Linux through bioinformatics and genomics, and I got introduced into uh, scientific computing, um, and started up with a company called Linux care and Linux care was one of the three major Linux players at the end of the nineties, early two thousands. There was red hat, there was VA Linux, who everybody knows of from their IPO. Then there was Linux care. And Linux Care uh, was one of the coolest uh, companies that that uh, that I was um, had a chance to to work with and got to work with some amazing people um, at that organization. Um, but from there, I kind of picked up Debian and I got really really uh, interested in Debian. Uh, didn't start maintaining any packages or anything, but did work with a lot of the package maintainers that were working at uh, Linux Care at the time. Um, and from there, I ended up landing at the Department of Energy uh, at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Um, now, LBL was completely uh, focused on, you know, and, and standardized on RPM-based distributions of Linux. And at that point, I think we're at, we were at Red Hat Linux, not Enterprise Linux, but Red Hat Linux, like, I think it was like six something or seven, one, seven, two, somewhere around there. And um, uh yeah, it, it just kind of all started from there. And uh, um, at some point, I, I kind of really felt strongly that there needs to be a community implementation of an RPM distribution of Linux. And that's what chaos was, um, not C-H-A-O-S, just C-A-O-S. Um, and uh, we built that up and we were, we were working on that. And that's when Red Hat announced that they were end of life in Red Hat Linux. And at that point, I think we were at... Uh, Red Hat Linux, what, 73809? Oh, nine. Oh, I think it was Red Hat 738, then nine, and then it went to RHEL and Fedora. And then it went, yes. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, the whole community was kind of left without their free, their free Linux that most of enterprise was using at that point. And we, uh, we basically, we were out of a build system. 
So one of the team members over there, his name was Rocky Maga, um, basically said, well, you know, I've, I've been playing with this and I, I know how to rebuild, rebuild um, Red Hat Linux. You know, maybe I should start doing that with Red Hat Enterprise Linux and get us a build system. And we're like, okay, that's a cool idea. And so he started going in that route and in that direction. And before we knew it, um, that operating system ended up kind of taking over for chaos and, and all of the other initiatives we were doing is that just took off giant. And, uh, and that ended up becoming CentOS. So at this point, it's chaos. Uh, is this back when it's chaos um, enterprise Linux? And then later, this, the, the name CentOS comes out and, and, and the project becomes CentOS. Do I understand that right? Yeah, you're bringing up you're bringing up all sorts of memories. Um, yeah, so it's called it Chaos Enterprise Linux, and then we ended up um, uh, one of the contributors uh, proposed the name CentOS, and uh, I really liked it. I thought it was I thought it had a nice ring to it, so we ended up going with CentOS, and um, yeah, the story just kind of took off from there. <laughs> so. So, so this lives for, for a good long time, and a lot of people, to include myself, really appreciated the fact that that the work of the CentOS project meant when I went to study for my, my RHCSA, um, I was able to sit down. The instructor said, you know, you can use one of these binarily compatible distributions and install it on as many machines as you want and practice and learn and explore. And I've since used that tool both professionally and, and personally to learn more about Red Hat systems. So we skate for a long, long time. Then uh, 2014-ish, Red Hat comes out and they acquire uh, CentOS. And w when this happens, what is your thought? Red Hat takes over the, the community you know, repackaging of Red Hat, but they're going to keep it and they're going to keep maintaining it. Anything concern you at all? Or does it seem like it's a good idea at the time? So um, I, I, didn't have, I didn't have much uh, to go on at that point, but I was definitely... You know, I have a lot of respect for Red Hat and everything that Red Hat has done for open source in the community. So uh, before jumping to any conclusions, just kind of wanted to see and watch, see how everything worked out. Um, but with that being said, I will say that there was a number of people that reached out and contacted me and said, well, now that Red, this is kind of under Red Hat's you know, purview and there's, a, there's an obvious conflict of interest with their, their main product, uh, maybe it makes sense to create a new CentOS at this point. And I said, you know, let's let's just wait and see what happens. Let's just watch, see how Red Hat handles this and see, you know, um, where this goes. And Red Hat proved that for a number of years, I mean, they, you know, they did a phenomenal job, a tremendous job uh, maintaining CentOS and, uh, you know, the community and uh, enterprises and whatnot. I mean, we all we all should be thanking Red Hat for the, you know, for the energy and what they've what they've done with CentOS since then. Yeah, absolutely. That then the tools that they've given to people, not to mention all of the free training and developer licenses for Red Hat proper, all of that. Um, but nevertheless, all of Red Hat's generosity aside, Tuesday, December 8th comes CentOS publishes a blog article entitled The CentOS Project Shifts Focus to CentOS Stream. And of course, this is the announcement where CentOS is going to become CentOS Stream, which means it's now an upstream continual release schedule. Um, and in some use cases, this is not going to be any problem at all. And and, and those that previously ran CentOS can run CentOS Stream and there won't be any issues. In other cases, it could be catastrophic because we're no longer a bug-for-bug -bug compatible version with Red Hat proper. Um, and you made a post on or a comment on this blog article and just said, hey, I'm considering creating another rebuild of RHEL. You may even be, I may even be able to hire some people for this effort. If you're interested in helping, please join uh, the HPC uh, Slack. And then you posted a link. People are over the moon. It goes 
gangbusters. Within a week, there's people all over the place. And the biggest task for you and your your team, your new team, is you have to organize these hundreds of people that are coming to you saying, I want to help. I want to support what you're doing. This is needed. And so the project is called Rocky Linux. I'm. This is out of uh, out of honor and uh, um, to your friend that passed away that that helped you start the original CentOS project. Do I understand that right? Yes, you do. And so as as this has grown, you, you know, a couple of things came out. Like you've outgrown Slack, and so you're moving to to Mattermost. Um, and and so as this community project has literally been born from the community. I mean, it started with a comment off of a blog and has in very public light, I might add, um, gone from there with, with you at the helm and kind of leading these, these things. Now there's, a, now there's a website up. You have a, a really good December update giving people some details on kind of what to expect. And, and, and in there, you talk a little bit about um, approaching a timeline. You say, you know, task number one is just to get ourselves organized so we understand what's going on so we can do things like make ETAs. Um, but you're thinking at this point, the way things are skating along, uh, quarter two of 2021, we might see something. That's what we're shooting for. Yeah. So uh, maybe even, you know, uh, some people may kick me for this, but may, we may even start seeing things before that. Uh, I, I don't want to pressure uh, the team. I mean, rebuilding a bunch of source RPMs is not the hardest problem in the world to solve, right? You could do it in, in its most rudimentary form with a, with a while loop in bash. Uh, where it gets really complicated is expanding this to where you can have many developers and many people being uh, that are interested in being part of this, being able to contribute and, and being able to maintain that. And then how do you manage the security and the uh, validity of those packages that are coming out of, of, of this process? Mm. And how do you audit that in a very scalable and, and big way? So that's really where we've been spending a lot of time. We don't have a, a, a huge rush. Uh, well, uh, yes and no. <laughs> we, we CentOS is going to continue to be a, a, a solution. It's going to be continuing to get updates uh, until December of 2021. So we do have some time. Now, with that being said, enterprises typically don't like to wait to the last minute. So we, we've already gotten requests from enterprises that want to start um, considering their migration path. And from that perspective, we need to be thinking about it with that enterprise hat on. And we need to be able to give these organizations something that they can uh, start planning towards. So it's really, it's a, it's a big, um, it's of high importance to me that we get uh, this timeline out there such that these enterprises, these individuals who are making these decisions know exactly what to expect and um, and when they can start you know testing this, when they can start rolling this out into production and not waiting to the last minute. But with that said, again, infrastructure first, and that's what we're working on right now. You have a lot of experience in in um, in high performance computing and and supercomputers and and those kinds of things. Um, and so you're well versed in what the requirements are going to be from a university or a science research facility and what they're going to expect from an enterprise operating system. And uh, aside from just the operating system, you have you've done a you've worked on or or done entirely uh, a, a few projects, things like essentially Docker for for high high performance computing. As you've as you've done these things, and and what has your experience told you that the enterprise expects from a community-based operating system? What what kind of targets are you looking to hit? Is it just a, like you say, the actual recompiling maybe is there, but 
negotiating and, and working with special interest groups and, and, and providing some sort of support infrastructure and or the infrastructure for the community to do the support? How are all, the, how are all of those things going? So almost all of my answers are going to be from the perspective of an HPC center or an HPC enterprise. Um, and only because that's just what I know. Sure. Uh, so in almost all of these situations across the board, we have certain areas of, of trust, of validation and um, change management that we have to deal with. Uh, in high performance computing specifically, you end up with uh, big, huge systems. And when I say big, huge systems, I mean, they can have many thousands of computers that are all part of one tightly coupled, tightly integrated uh, system. From there, we can basically be um, running and, and providing a, a service or an infrastructure for thousands of users simultaneously. Now, you can start to probably imagine the software dependencies and the amount of software that needs to be built against that entire system. Now, containers have helped a lot with that. Uh, Singularity, which is the container system that I created, which is kind of like a Docker for HPC, um, this, you know, it, it definitely helps with that. But most of today's HPC is very, very tied to starting from the underlying hardware and then working up the stack, um, going all the way to the applications. Hmm. Uh, a couple of the centers that I've worked with literally maintain thousands of custom compiled applications, libraries, and compilers. Uh, on their HPC resource. So to change a version of their of the underlying operating system there is something that in some cases requires, you know, well over, I would say eight to 10 months of preparation and planning. And it's a large amount of work. And then to do the qualification afterwards to make sure that all of those applications are working as expected um, is sometimes an extraordinarily, again, very difficult process to maintain. So from an HPC perspective, they don't want anything changes and changed. And mm. I've worked with several organizations um, within government specifically that said, once we have qualified this piece of software, we won't even let you upgrade SSH. And that shows you how critical it is to lock these systems down. Now, of course, I can usually talk my way out past SSH, but when you have a C library that needs to be updated, it's a little bit of a different story. Mm -hmm. So you start to get the idea that this is a extraordinarily stable kind of infrastructure that is not going to move fast. It's going to move very, very slowly and take a lot of planning to do so. Um, so when I'm thinking of an enterprise operating system, there's several different facets Sorry to keep talking so much. Um, <laughs> there's several different facets. The first one is that stability. The next one is the trust and the validity of that underlying um, uh, binaries and that, that operating system to ensure that there's no Trojans, right? When you're working for whether it be government entities or whether you're working with um, enterprises or you know media and uh, uh, you, you have to have that trust in that underlying operating system. Um, it's absolutely critical. And how do you gain that trust? That's the kind of problems that we're working through right now. And that's something that CentOS, just due to the infrastructure that was available at the time, didn't really have a great footing on how best to deal with those sorts of problems. And that's why the CentOS team was always very small, uh, starting from the very beginning. So you're, I mean, essentially, the, the way that the team had approached it before was they were taking the, they were taking what would be a product that somebody could use, um, but came with a price tag and, and recompiling that and, and putting that out. Um, one of the interesting 
things that has come out of this then is your ability to say, hey, I have the experience to know what kind of things are, are going to be important and what kind of what kind of problems you might r- run up against. And I will know how to answer those questions for your certification process, or your deployment process or those kinds of things. And this is a way that Rocky Linux can perhaps add value to people that want to use that distribution. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you hit that 100 uh, percent on the head. So we're even talking about like uh, enabling FIPS um, security, um, STIG and and others that we can actually guarantee um, particular security validation points of the base operating system. And thus people that are running this in a, uh, whether it be a controlled sector or or, uh, some sort of high security environment can actually gain that confidence and understand that that operating system actually has you know, this this baseline security kind of, you know, you know, stamp of approval in a matter of speaking. Uh, but how do you do that in a way in which you want this to be an open, diverse, large, inclusive community? And how do you allow then people to just take part in this while maintaining that level of, of certification? And that's where we've been spending a huge amount of time thinking through and really architecting that infrastructure right from the beginning to be security and controls compliant, as well as developer um, open and engaging. Conan Kudo in the chat room has a question. He says, if HPC has frozen environments, would it be possible to use frozen snapshots of the CentOS stream uh, to accomplish the same goal? Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Um, The problem then just comes into play when you do do upgrades, since we do do system upgrades. So let me give you an example. Um, There's, there's, uh, on the spectrum of what is frozen and 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 not, the not being able to upgrade SSH is just one extreme. The more typical extreme is, well, we're going to stay on a particular RHEL version uh, or CentOS version, a Rocky version, for as long as we absolutely possibly can. And we're going to have specific windows of opportunity where we are going to be doing system and security upgrades along the way. Uh, so you want to have that that stability in that underlying API uh, such that all of those binaries, those thousands of binaries, applications, libraries, and compilers that you've built, you're going to have confidence that just because you're doing a YUM or a DNF update, you're not going to break all of those. So you still want that longevity, um, and you want to ensure that you are going to be able to get necessary updates and, and security and bug fix updates as they become available. Um, again, my my pointing at that one uh, compliance issue where you couldn't we couldn't even upgrade SSH mm-hmm. is is kind of an outlier, but it just demonstrates how critical it is to a lot of people that these systems remain absolutely stable. Sure, sure. Uh, and I, you know, I think anybody that's worked in system administration at one point or another in their career has come across the magic box, right? The magic box, it's in the corner. Well, how does that, but I don't know. We, we don't know how that was set up. We don't we just, we don't touch it and it's in the, the corner and it works and we just, we pray every night and then it, we come back the next day and it's still working. It's the magic box. We don't ask questions. Everybody has had that environment, right? And that's, that's, that's what it feels like when you have when you need an operating system, but there isn't one available that that fits the that that fits the bill. Um, let me ask you this, Greg. Talk about special interest groups. I know that there is. I know that you've been approached. Um, a lot of people are saying, "Hey, here is something. Here is our specific uh, need." And of course, there is a very symbiotic relationship that can be had there, in which the people that use the thing can help fund the development of the thing. But talk about what some of these special interest groups are and what their involvement, if any, is or will be with the Rocky Linux project. Oh, that's a great question. And yeah, there's definitely been a lot of interest. 
Um, we've had people come up and ask, you know, can we have a optimized desktop environment? Can we add, you know, a, a newer kernel? Can we do X, Y, or Z? And of course, as you can probably tell, I'm very interested in it from the HPC perspective. Um, but the first rule here is that we're creating a bug for bug compatible version with the upstream Linux uh, distribution, which is RHEL. So anything that we do is not going to affect that. By default, the first thing we have is the stable, uh, the stable foundation. On top of that stable foundation, now you have to make things, if you want to have SIGs, you have to have them to be optional. Uh, and you have to be able to give a mechanism for people to reliably um, buy into it and say, yes, I want the desktop variant of this or the laptop variant of this. Uh, and, and be able to select that package group and then be able to move forward from there. So that's how we're thinking about this. Again, this is a, we, we start off with this absolutely stable foundation, and then we give people the opportunity via special interest groups to jump in and add additional capabilities or packages. Um, uh, the model that I was thinking of for this actually comes from another uh, rebuild called Scientific Linux. Uh, now, a number of years ago, and I don't remember which Scientific Linux variant this was, but even in the installer, you had, they had another page in the installer, which basically said, uh, what are the, are the extra or site specific packages that you want to leverage? And this gave the, whoever's installing it, a very easy way to basically enable or disable uh, specific repos or, or SIGs. And you can then basically just add install time. You can, you can make modifications to what is even being installed and, or, have custom installers for those for those um, special interests. Is there an opportunity uh, to for the special interest groups to to fund the ongoing development of the project, or do you have other ideas of how to fund the the ongoing development of Rocky Linux? Oh, another really good question. So, Rocky Linux. So, if we look back towards CentOS, um, CentOS started off. Um, actually coming out of, again, Chaos Linux and the Chaos Linux Foundation. Um, so at the time I created a, a not-for-profit organization um, around Chaos Linux, trying to come up with a way of hosting and taking in donations and, and whatnot around this. And those donations were then basically turned to be used on the product uh, project itself. So I'm basically doing almost exactly the same thing. I mean, where, where CentOS really... Um, changed was after it left this this foundation that I had and the developers you know went into this went to a different direction um, it kind of changed you know tone there was even a, a period there where you know some of the people were were kind of unreachable and whatnot there was an open letter that was sent out um, trying to trying to get access to things like the domain name and the donation button and things like that. Uh, so there was definitely a little bit of, of turmoil that occurred and some, some drama that occurred kind of early on. And again, because the infrastructure wasn't really there to be, have a very inclusive large community and still end up with something that is, you know, um, cryptographically signed and, and trusted packages and whatnot. Um, it was always a very small kind of group that was, that was running with this. So one of the things that is very important to me is to make sure that there's an organization that's hosting this that has in its charter, in its um, founding principles, that this is going to stay open and free from corporate uh, control. Now, um, I'm a CEO of, of a startup, and I'm not going to plug any of that here. But um, one of my 
one of my direct interests is how do I keep Rocky even away from my own company and my own company's control? And how do I maintain that delineation and that separation? Mm -hmm. And so I've been working through that and I've been working with a lot of volunteers to figure out, okay, what are the documents and the charters and the uh, promises that we are making to the community on behalf of this organization on how are we keeping this free? How are we maintaining transparency? How are we doing all of these things to make sure that this stays in the community? And uh, so that basically means you asked about funding development. Mm-hmm. Um, it means that there's no business model um, uh, associated with this. It will be sponsorship. Um, we're going to, and again, a lot of this is kind of still materializing. We're, we're like, three weeks old at this point <laughs> but in terms of in terms of what it is that what, what's inside the vision and and where this you know yeah. where we want to take this is really you know we, we want to have corporate sponsorships we want to have um uh donations and that's pretty much it uh people that have the ability to spend time on this whether through their employer or because they find this a a um you know a fun hobby something that they want to be associated with mm-hmm. whatever that is um, that's really what we're what we're trying to 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 foster, and then to make sure that everything that gets put into this stays open and free, and making sure that we're creating the right infrastructure to do that. I, I, I will just put a put a little statement out there that sure. to do that is not a, not an easy thing to do, um, and it actually requires a number of lawyers <laughs> to ensure that everything is is open, that the corporation is being set up in a way that is not for profit, um, and that we are going through all of the appropriate hoops and whatnot to ensure that all of the policy decisions we're making is something that's going to hold up. So I've engaged, and I'm I'm personally paying for for this sort of stuff um, at the moment, and. You know, at some point, I'm very much looking forward to that changing via sponsorships and and donations from other people. Um, but at the moment, we're good. I'm I'm not like begging for money or anything. No. We're we're good. Um, but I just wanted to let people know that there's definitely going to be an opportunity for for corporate sponsorships and individual donations and so on and so forth. Well, it sounds to me like you are ultimately responsible to the end users and to the community. You're not responsible to another corporate interest. You're not responsible to a special interest group. You're responsible to the community and producing a product for the community. And so, I mean, there's nothing left to say, but thank you. Um, How many developers are currently working on this project? Again, you've been overwhelmed with support to the extent that you've been able to get people organized and working on small things. uh, What's kind of the situation right now? So <laughs> you, you mentioned that blog post and the comment that I put on that blog post. I, I thought I'd get a little bit of interest. I had no idea. Um, <laughs> the world is about to explode. <laughs> I had no idea of the amount of people that would, would want to be part of this and want to help this. Um, within mere days, we had thousands of people um, jumping into the Slack. Our, our GitHub was, was like ranked number one. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, what was it? The, just the ranking of the number of people starring it and, and, and following it and doing all this stuff. Um, we actually hit our GitHub uh, large file support limit and we didn't have anything in the repository yet. Well, we had a couple logos and that was it. How do you hit the limits on a repository um, when, you know, you, you don't have anything there. It's, it was, it's really been a whirlwind in terms of how quickly and how much interest 
uh, people have in this. And, and one of my goals is uh, I want to figure out how do we keep this not only as a community endeavor, but how do we actually uh, help everybody to be part of this? There's so much energy and there's so much initiative uh, that that's coming through the Slack channel, that's coming through IRC, that's just coming, you know, email, everything. Mm-hmm. So many people want to be part of this. And I just, I want to figure out how do we do this in such a way that everybody can be part of this. I want this to be a gigantic community inclusive group. And I want this to be cool and fun and um, where everybody who wants to to take part in this can. To me, that is the perfect solution. I'd say you're off to a, to a great start, my friend. So you're a, you're a system administrator and you have a CentOS 8 box uh, in production. And now you know that by the end of the year, you're going to have to do something else. So we skate to quarter two of, of 2021 and Greg's plans come together. And sure enough, there's an ISO available and now we have a distribution. How difficult is it going to be for administrators to convert a CentOS 8 box to a Rocky Linux 8 box? Literally one command. Um, you don't need the ISO. You don't need anything. Um, we're not talking about, you know, CentOS's binaries are not restricted by EULA like Red Hat Enterprise Linux binaries are. Um, because it's CentOS, because it is a freely available operating system, there's no restriction and there's no um, EULA, quote unquote, that that users cannot continue to use those binaries. So the easiest way of, of managing the switch is you literally run one DNF command and you install our release package. And we will have a single copy paste this command into your terminal and it will basically go grab our release package, install our crypto, you know, our, 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 our GPG keys and whatnot um, into the system. It'll change all of the yum repos, uh, sorry, sorry, DNF repos um, uh, on the system to point to our mirrors and then updates and everything that you're expecting will just continue on and there'll be zero disruption. Wow, that's gonna be fantastic. That's uh, that's great. Uh, that's great. That's exactly what everybody who has a, Cento, a CentOS box in eight box in production wants to hear right now. Um, let me ask you this uh, for kind of a larger picture, because you're one of the few people that can answer things like this. So over 20 plus years, you have been involved in open source and started many projects and, and, and led many projects and handed many projects off. What lessons have you learned uh, throughout the years? And, and what do you take away from starting Rocky Linux today versus starting CentOS, um, whatever it was, 10 years ago? What's changed? Is it is it is it easier? Are there more tools available? Has the perception changed? Funding changed? What stands out to you? Well, uh, the the stack has moved up considerably. Uh, it, it's it's kind of it's depressing when you tell me I've been doing this for like twenty years, um, <laughs> but the stack has moved up. I mean, my skill set now is is really core Linux. And it's funny because, you know, I, I'd get, you know, and I'd see, you know, people advertising jobs for full stack and it still boggles my mind that the full stack doesn't include the operating system. How could you have a full stack without the operating system? But that's where the technology and that's where everybody is kind of um, gone to it. But in doing that, we've changed the infrastructure and the infrastructure now that is going to be running this and building, uh, uh, you know, building this operating system and building these packages is a completely different environment. Than, than what we had on the early days of, of CentOS. I kind of alluded to this um, already, but um, be, it's because of that, that we can do things in, a, in an extraordinarily different way and in a more scalable way. Um, and that's some of the things that I'm, I'm really 
interested in and I've completely gone in another direction. I think I forgot the question now. Um, so hopefully I either answered it or I'm going in the right way. Yeah, no, you are. I just, you know, I, I just, I think about back in, back in, in, in the, in the two thousands or mid two thousands. And if you wanted a website, well, you are probably going to purchase a server and then you're setting it up in, you know, either at your apartment or your friend's place, or maybe you knew a business that had a place that had some static IP addresses. You could do it there. Um, today, you go on to you know your VPS or your your uh, your VPS of choice, and you rent a server, and you spin it up with whatever distro you want, and then you spin up the Docker containers you want, and all of a sudden, communications tools and websites and 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 sponsorships from other open source projects, if you need that, uh, all of those things are just available. The biggest thing to me, Greg, is today it's perfectly acceptable to say I'm going to take source code and I'm going to write it in this open way and put it up on this repo and I want people to help fund this and people can wrap their brains around that. I suspect in the in the 2000s, if you told everybody I wanted to start a software company and I want you to pay for it, people look at you have like you have four eyes. Like that, that doesn't make any sense. It's not the way we develop software. And so to a certain degree, I think the expectations in the IT sphere in general just have changed. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there was anything that, that stood out to you as like, yeah, that was a lot easier to, you know, that we have... Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, Nikolai, for example, to, to spin up the website or WordPress to spin up the website as opposed to sitting there writing HTML in, in Notepad++ or whatever the difference is. <laughs> I still, when I, when I go to op- create a website, I'm still opening up like a VI session with Apache. Um, although I started to upgrade to Nginx, so that's a big step for me here. Um, yeah, I'm multi-threading. It's still, it's still VI, you know? Um, so you don't want me creating the website for this. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, the same thing for the build infrastructure. Again, uh, I kind of joked about, you know, the, the, the build infrastructure could literally be a, a while loop um, in bash, just recalling RPM build and, you know, pulling packages as they become available. I mean, you could do that, right. But it's, it's not scalable. It's not something that, that is, um, going to drive a community and going to drive engagement of that community um, and whatnot. So, uh, yeah, I, I remember now I, I got lost because of the thinking back through my 20 years of, of age and, and, <laughs> and whatnot. It's been That's a long ride, hasn't it? It really has. It really has. And in terms of lessons learned, um, which I think is where you were originally um, uh, going with that or, or asking me about, there's a lot. Uh, there's, there's definitely a lot in, in some cases, uh, you know, there's another interview, sorry to, I'm going to go on a little quick tangent. There's another interview that I did, um, with the uh, community manager of CentOS before all of this, this happened. And they just wanted to interview me for the, uh, the 15 year, uh, CentOS, um, anniversary. Mm -hmm. And that interview kind of became two parts. And the first one was, how, you know, what, what was just, what was CentOS like in the early days and what kind of happened? Um, but the second part of this was, uh, and it was something that, um, that Rich, uh, who was interviewing me, um, kind of called out as, as a little bit different, which is kind of my approach to, to building open source communities. And uh, when I first got involved with open source, you know, 20 plus years ago, it was a harsh community, right? You had to have pretty thick skin and you had to, um, you had to be able to, to take quite a bit of attitude. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, at least I think that there's a reason why Torvalds is, is kind of known for being mm-hmm. somewhat harsh on the mailing list. And maybe that's an understatement, but it's because, you know, when this whole thing started, it was not a kind community. Right. Um, and 
uh, I actually just didn't hold up very well in that. Um, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't like it, but I really wanted to take part in this. And I found that it was, it was easier for me to, um, uh, to help lead a community and set the tone of a community from a very different perspective than trying to join a community that was already kind of, you know, set in its ways. Mm-hmm. To me, that was always very important uh, to make sure that that community was, was helpful, was friendly. You know, we, we checked our attitudes and our egos at the door and, you know, we, we basically are all on the same team and we're trying to figure out how to solve this problem. Again, all being on the same team. Be the and, sh- uh, be yeah, the change so you want to be. Big, yeah, yeah. I mean, I hate to sound cliche, but yeah, that's that's really the big lesson learned. I think that I've taken with me through all of this. Are you cool taking some phone calls? Absolutely. One eight fifty five four fifty no. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Walt joins us. Uh, Walt, welcome into the program. Hi. Thank you. How are you? Great. Great. Hi, Walt. Uh, I hi. How are you? You know, I I'm. I've been a, I'm stumbling on my words. I'm sorry. Uh, I've been a, a Mac user since the very beginning. When I was a kid, I was assembling RAM modules with the little cores under microscopes, you know. So, uh, but what I'm wondering is what can be done to prevent uh, corporate steals of the product uh with an open source, a completely open source community to an extent that they can easily uh, breach the security uh, of the platform. If it's a, if it's a new platform, I know it's Linux and uh, I'm trying to figure out how we can all get away from the big corporate structures where you ultimately end up having to buy expensive subscriptions to applications or uh, other aspects uh, for large, large sums of money that, uh, you know, really don't deserve uh, to be paid. Uh, I don't know, even know if I said that right. Uh, I'm kind of new at this, so forgive me. No, no worries. Do you have any, (laughs) you know, do you have any plans to package, uh, say, the education platform, like uh, a mobile laptop for education uh, or, uh, you know, tablets for Linux, just a complete series of products that are geared to specific hardware configurations that would be popular by consumers that would also be interested in becoming part of the open source community. I think open source is where it's at. A lot of people have been getting really, really rich, and I'm not opposed to that. But when you have to pay, you know, $3,000 for a server that, you know, maybe holds five seats or 10 seats, you know, that that's ridiculous for upstarts. And it, it, it really hurts entrepreneurs, people who are trying to get into business and try new things and and develop uh, some sort of strategy. 
So I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, Greg, but uh, if I understand your question, Walt essentially is asking, you know, what protections are in place to ensure that the same fate of CentOS doesn't happen to Rocky Linux? What's to keep that um, from being from all of a sudden some corporate interest looking over and saying, yeah, that looks like that would be a good thing. I think you kind of touched on that. You said you've you've taken some steps to try to insulate Rocky from even your own company. Yeah, exactly. And and I would actually take it even a slightly different way, which is. I want companies to be able to leverage this because some of the points that Walt made regarding being able to add value in terms of specific hardware, custom hardware, custom integrations, additional capabilities, I want them to have a stable community-based open platform that they can leverage this and do this on. I absolutely want people to make money through this. And uh, I want to give them the confidence that they can create their products based on this. Uh, They can build their infrastructure based on this without the fear that anything's going to happen to it uh, in a negative way. You brought up corporate, you know, like a a hostile takeover in a matter of speaking. Uh, The nice thing about it being a completely open community uh, with an open charter, open direction, and, and being as transparent as absolutely possible while protecting this as absolutely possible is really key. And putting that messaging out there, putting the um, uh, the intentions of the organization out there and making sure that we hold ourselves to be true to that is incredibly important. And one way that we can do that is not just putting it up on our website, right? Because the website can change. I mean, sure, we got the Wayback Machine, we got the archive, people can go back and see it, but let's be a little bit more upfront with it. Let's put it on every release of every version that we, you know, that we're releasing. Let's put it on the mirror. Let's mm. put all of our charters and all of our policies and our vision on that that mirror that's going to be archived and, and available anytime somebody downloads this. I see this as a way of not only um, bridging and, and gaining confidence in in both, you know, educational, uh, commercial, government, uh, hobbyists, uh, entrepreneurial. But it also keeps us honest. And and not that I'm worried about us not being honest. Maybe I'm naive in that. But I I want people to realize how we're approaching this and the direction of how we're approaching this is really in the best interest of the community at large to ensure that there is that stable platform for people to leverage and that it's not gonna go away. Hopefully I, I, I touched on a, a couple points that, that, that answered your question, um, but it was really good, really good question. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, again, open phone lines, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. So, Greg, if people are hearing this and they're saying, yes, I am excited, I is convinced me this is the, this is the place I want to be, and it, it, it's an open, inviting um, community, and, and I want to be a part of it, um, where are you directing people now? So we, we, we have a website, um, rockylinux.org. Um, and from there, you can either there's a link to join the Slack um, community that we have up. Um, as has been mentioned already, we're going to be moving this over to Mattermost um, here, hopefully pretty soon. Um, and uh, we're, we're really at the upper limits of what Slack is able to handle on a free account. So, and we can't afford the uh, <laughs> the commercial account with Slack. So, we're going to be moving as as I mentioned to, to Mattermost. Um, so. 
probably this in this next week we're going to see that move um we want to we want to welcome people to come and join the slack just be aware that you know in whether it be a couple days or you know a few days we're going to be moving this so you'll have to get another account on on matter most but we're going to try mm -hmm. to, to make that transition as seamless as possible but yes please join in we also have a google form where if you are interested in contributing from a development effort, uh, please do fill that out. Now, I wanna just mention one quick thing, um, if you don't mind, we've okay. had a lot of people fill out that developer form um, and people that want to contribute. We've had uh, over 400 the last time I looked, um, people who are, who are trying to you know, be part of this organization, contribute, develop, and so on and so forth. And as a result of that, it's even just taking us a long time just to go through that whole list. So if you've already uh, submitted something to us, uh, sorry, it is taking longer than expected. We do have a few people that are going through every one of those and we're matching those up to teams. And those teams are currently um, within Slack, within certain channels within Slack, and we have team leads and you know, we're kind of uh, trying to orchestrate everybody to go into the right team and do the right introductions. But if you just want to just jump right in, jump into Slack, jump into matter most, depending on when you're listening to this and find the channels in the areas that you're most interested in, uh, jump into those channels, listen to the conversations that are occurring there. And if you don't see anything right away, that's, that's applicable, introduce yourself, say, hi, say, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, I can do and I'm interested in helping and you will definitely get um, very positive feedback, and we would we would love that. So, please join. Greg Kurtz, Kurtz Er, excuse me, Kurtz Er. He is the executive director of Rocky Linux, a bug for bug Red Hat compatible distribution. You can learn more at RockyLinux.org. We'll have the Google form as well as RockyLinux.org link for you in the show notes. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here. We really appreciate all of the effort that you're doing, what you're doing, the way that you're going about doing it, the way that you're being open and transparent to the community. Uh, we'd love to get you back on the program in the future. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun, Noah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, and yeah, looking forward to talking again. Fantastic. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. In our feedback segment this hour, Jeremy writes in. He says, hey, Noah, love the show. couple of questions for you. I agree with you on Wi-Fi that Unify is one of the best options. On one of your recent podcasts, you recommended the Unify UAPAC Pro, which has been your experience with the UAPAC Pro versus the Nano HD, especially if most of the devices are 5 gigahertz. The Nano HD seems to be a better choice. What are the strongest reasons to choose the AC Pro over the Nano HD besides the slightly lower cost of the AC Pro? Well, I will tell you, uh, Jeremy, first of all, you're right. The Nano HD is a fantastic product. In fact, I would tell you that the, the vast majority of all of the Unify lineup is a great product. There's, or is a great lineup. There's only one or two of them I might stay away from. Uh, the UAP AC Pro rolls off my tongue primarily because it's what we use most often in hotels. And it is because of the price uh, for performance features. It's just, it's the product that is, is best placed in the, the cheapest thing for the most amount of bang for your buck that you get. Um, and so we have literally two shelves full of them. Uh, and so it's, it happens to be the first model that I think of. But if, if the, if you have a, a small house or a small office or a large house, I should say, um, the, the Nano HD is a great way to go. I would tell you that if I were to upgrade the Wi-Fi in my house, if my access point died tomorrow, I wouldn't probably upgrade it with the UAP AC Pro. I'd probably upgrade it with the UAP AP HD, which is, uh, which is the bigger brother of the Nano HD. 
Uh, the only ones I would stay away from, I would stay from any of the long-range access points, the APACLR uh, and, and the, the original Unify APLR. Both of those devices, it was a great idea, I guess. The problem is that they talk out farther than they can hear. And so in reality, they don't actually get you any, they don't actually get you anything. You have to turn them all down to low power to get them to work reliably anyway. So I would stay away from the long range ones. Any of the rest of the lineup from Unify to include, uh, they have a little in-wall unit that um, that's real popular inside of, if you're doing like one access point per room in your house. Uh, and all of their ad- access points are enterprise grade. And so you're not going to have to worry about what features come with uh, with one or the other. Um, and so, yeah, if you if the uh, if the Nano HD is is what you want to go with and you have the budget for it, it is a smaller, uh, uh, more up to date access point even. Yeah, Jeremy, second question. What security NVR solution do you recommend? I want to support 16 cameras at 5 megapixels 4K, PoE IP cameras, ONVIF compliant, H.265 over RTSP. I'm looking at Blue Iris, Synology, or a hardware-based NVR. Synology seems underpowered. The hardware-based NVR are mostly made in China, and there's questionable security. They rarely get firmware updates and don't have the best UI. Blue Iris requires running windows there does not seem to be a great solution some just okay options what do you recommend and why um so i I would start with this i I would encourage you to head over to synology.com and use their product selection tool i'll have it linked for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com when i put your recommendation or when i put your requirements into their selection tool they spit back to me the synology uh, FS6400, which comes, which can be upgraded to up to 512 gigabytes of RAM, comes with a dual Intel Xeon 8-core processor. So I don't, I, I guess I would dispute a little bit that Synology is underpowered. I think that they have more powerful devices. They may cost more money. Um, but, the, and, I, and I, I, I started out in that boat. I was very, very skeptical to get on the boat of, of Synology because I thought, I don't really want a security solution that's kind of an afterthought. They built a NAS and then they hacked on a security solution, and I, I don't really want that. And that is not an accurate summation of, first of all, how Surveillance Station came about. Second of all, the emphasis that, that Synology places on it. And third of all, um, the way it actually works. If you, If I took a Synology disk station, installed Surveillance Station on it, put a fancy label and put it in, in, in the store next to the Honeywells and the Blue Irises and all of that, and you just picked it up and didn't know that it was supposed to be a NAS originally, and this was a third-party thing that Synology added on after the fact, you would think it was born to be the, the world's best NVR. They just work that well. And the thing is, when you our customers, when they go out, and their experience is primarily going to be based off of their mo- off the mobile app because that's what they use to look up footage. That's what they look to seek back in their timeline. That's just the way that people want to interact with the device. And so their mobile app, DSCAM, works fantastic. Um, if you are one of those power users and you want to log in through a web UI and configure all of the things, you can certainly do that. Uh, or because if you're buying all ONVF and ONVIF compliant cameras, which you should be, then you not only can you bring them into something like the Synology and have that for recording and management, but you can also use something like Pi display cameras to render them out onto a matrix so that you can see them on a, on a TV for 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 options. Um, I agree with you that the most of the hardware based NVRs are just cheap Chinese junk. Um, I might look at GeoVision. They have a Linux based NVR. GeoVision is not a Chinese company, they're a Taiwanese company, and the build quality seems to be slightly better, but it doesn't even hold a candle, in my opinion, 
to uh, the to the Synology. And so if you're looking for a um, if you're looking for the best one out there, I've tried them all. Synology seems to be the best. Even Blue Iris, if you're loading it on on even if you loaded it on a Windows system, when we took the software licensing and uh, completely out of the equation, the reliability is going to be higher on the Synology than you're going to get with a Windows 10 machine because it's going to nothing else restart for updates. Um, so uh, that that would be where I start. But even if I'm wrong, the vast majority of the money that you're going to spend will not be in the NVR itself. It may be in the NVR licensing. The vast majority of the cost is going to be tied up in the cameras. And so I, I would focus a lot on what cameras you're going to buy. Of course, we would recommend GeoVision Access. Um, by the way, to, to exemplify what I mean when I tell you that Synology, this is not necessarily, this isn't just an afterthought. They purchase Access cameras and test surveillance station against whatever the latest Access lineup is. Top security manufacturer, security camera manufacturer in the world. That's what they're using to test against. So it is a it is a tier one product. It just is. Our pick of the week this week is Snapdrop, local file sharing in your browser, inspired by Apple's AirDrop. You can learn more at Snapdrop.net. Now underneath the hood, this is very simple. It's a vanilla HTML5 interface, WebRTC, Node.js backend, and uh, and a little web app. And so essentially, you visit the server in your browser. You don't need an account. You don't need to set anything up. It just pops up and says, you're known as Yellow Yellow Yak. And then it says, have a friend or family member open a browser. So they open a browser, and they go to snapdrop.net, and they'll be known as something else. But then they see Yellow Yak in their browser, and if they just drag a file and drop it over Yellow Yak, it pops up in your browser, and you can download it. Coolest little thing ever. just have to be on the same network. Of course, you can self-host it. It comes in a Docker file. Our gadget of the week. The DualSense Wireless PS5 Controller. The DualSense Wireless Controller for the PS5 offers immersive haptic feedback, dynamic adaptive triggers with built-in microphone integrated. Okay, here's the thing. You may not have a PS5. You might not even like Sony. I don't have a PS5. I don't even like gaming. And let me tell you why I still might want one of these things. This is from uh, Roderick Colenbrander at Sony.com. It's a submission for a patch into the Linux kernel. Quote, I am pleased to share with you a new Linux driver for the PlayStation 5 DualSense game controller. The drive supports DualSense in both Bluetooth and USB modes. Most controller features are supported, including LED, touchpad, motion sensors, and rumble. The DualSense supported implementation of a new HID PlayStation driver, which will be used for peripherals by Sony Interactive Entertainment. HID Sony will be used for devices for a larger Sony group. We intend to migrate existing devices over... Uh, to this gradually to HID PlayStation. We do not want to cause any regression and we want to maintain quality. As such, moving unit tests are important and we have started by providing these through HID tools, including DualSense. Not supported yet? Unique features introduced by DualSense, such as adaptive triggers and VCM-based haptics. These features require a large amount of data and complex data structures. It's not clear how to expose those. The current uh, NDEV and FF frameworks are too limiting. We hope to have a dialogue on how to expose these over time in a generic way. And, of course, what he's referring to is this new game controller that Sony has designed for their PS5 has a really interesting way of providing haptic feedback. Not only can they do adaptive triggers, so, for example, if you're pushing a brake on a car, it's going to push back as a brake would. If you're firing a, you know, a firearm, it's going, to, it's going to feel like the trigger of a firearm. It can simulate those different things. They've also placed haptic feedback, so when you're getting thrown back in the seat of a racing game, you feel that in your hands on your controller. Now, the important the thing that I thought was so cool about this is, not necess- is, first of all, that it works on Linux. Second of all, that it's Sony proper that's writing this patch and then submitting it. And this is this guy that works for Sony, and he wrote this driver and sent it in. 
if you would have told me 10 years ago or 15 years ago that Sony was going to be writing drivers and willingly submitting them to the Linux kernel so that we would have good support uh, with their controller, I would have told you that you're uh, you're crazy. Articles that we didn't have time to get to in the show today, XFCE 4.16 has been released. There are a number of new features. They've cleaned up a lot of stuff, a lot of noteworthy updates. You'll have to check out the show notes to learn more. Darktable 3.4 Encore, one of the best professional photography tools out there. This is the second major release that they've had in 2020, over 5,500 commits. Um, and they've, they've, just, they've improved so much stuff inside of Darktable that I, we, I wouldn't even be able, I don't even understand all of the things that they have changed. Um, but over 5,500 commits, a lot of new tools and new filters that have been introduced. So if you're a user of that app, you're definitely going to want to go check it out. Uh, that's it for this week. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. To stay with the latest, follow us on Twitter, at AskNoahShow. You can follow me personally, at Colonel Linux. Of course, all of the articles and references that we use throughout the show, we release them as show notes in the podcast. You can find it at podcast.AskNoahShow.com. Everyone, have a great week. We'll see you back here next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. <laughs>